Hey, I'm John Harwood, host of CNBC's Speakeasy series. In this edition, I talked to Gary Cohn, who directs President Trump's National Economic Council in the White House. Am I, am I correct that you're not saying, as you did a few weeks ago, that the uh, wealthy do not get a tax cut under your plan? You're not saying that anymore? I, I, no, I, John, I, I'm saying there's, there's unique situations to everyone out there. It's That's not our intention to give the wealthy a tax cut. That was not our intention. But they are getting one. I don't, believe that, that, I don't believe that we set out to create a tax cut for the wealthy. If someone's getting a tax cut, I'm not upset that they're getting a tax cut. I'm really not upset. Now, Gary Cohn's role makes him a central player in the push for tax cuts, despite complaints that Republican plans would help the rich and boost the deficit. I talked to him on November 7th, just as Congress began the sprint to pass tax cuts that continues to this day. Our conversation took place at American University, where Cohn studied as an undergraduate after high school years made challenging by his dyslexia. Gary Cohn, thanks for joining us here. John, it's great to be here. So we're at American University, where you went to school. Um, people have told me that uh, you learned a lot about concert promotion here. <laughs> you uh, did a lot of trading. Um, tell me what you learned about yourself, uh, what your skills are, what your core um, strength is? Look, coming to AU was one of the best experiences of my life, probably the most important experience of my life. I had come through a relatively rough academic experience mm -hmm. in high school and before that. And coming to college, you get to reinvent yourself. And AU was a phenomenal place for me to reinvent myself. And I learned a lot about being confident, mm -hmm. about learning how to succeed, about uh, learning how to challenge myself take some courses that I wasn't sure I could do well in or not well in mm -hmm. and actually succeeding. Yes, I had some fun. We did some concert promotion. I did uh, get introduced to the financial markets while I was in college mm -hmm. after my freshman year, which was really a crucial turning point in my life and really determined what I was going to do for the next 30 years of my life. So, you know, AU is really the cornerstone of what I became in my, in my adult life. And what, what, when you think about you and markets, that's, that's sort of the core of what you're good at, right? Um, what is it? is it? Is it instincts for seeing where markets are going to go? Or what, what, how would you describe it? John, I, I think it's a, it's, it's a combination of certain things. Um, as I've talked about many times before, so I don't want to bore you, yeah. you know, I grew up as a dyslexic kid. Yeah. So you know, when you grow up with certain disabilities, you learn to counteract or make up for them in other ways. So number one, I became very much of a um, listener. And I learned through listening and I learned through watching. Mm -hmm. And I think I learned also how to um, sort of filter out all of the, the, the non-rational or non-sensible noise and sort of concentrate on what matters. And that's really what markets are about, what matters. So separating rational what, from not rational. Exactly, mm -hmm. separate the rational from what, the irrational, separate what matters now to what doesn't matter now, number one. Number two is growing up with these learning disabilities, um, I learned really young how to fail. I was actually really good at failing. Uh, I had failing down to a science. Um, and part of trading is knowing how to fail. Um, when I see really talented people come into the trading world who, who should, on paper, be great traders, they usually fail. Mm -hmm. at being great traders because they overanalyze and they don't understand when something's not working because they're not used to failing. Where I, on the other hand, used to approach every transaction like it was going to fail 
So therefore, I could get out of the bad positions relatively quickly, and I could allow the, the good positions to go on and on. And, and that's, you know, the, the cardinal rule of trading is, you know, cut your losses and allow your, your winners to go on for right. a long time. Well, let me ask you about that separating rational from irrational, because I think most people looking from the outside see more irrational stuff happening in this White House than in any White House that they've seen. So tell me how that uh, strength comes to bear on your service to the president. So, John, as you know, I'm involved in the economic side of the White House. I consider myself to be very knowledgeable in that sector. I also, you know, I, I have a, a, a realistic view of what I know and even a more realistic view of what I don't know, and I try and stay away from what I don't know. On the economic side, I think the reality is pretty strong for what's going on in this White House. You know, you can look at the jobs data. You know, we had 4.1% unemployment last month, which is a 16-year low. Unfortunately, we didn't have wage growth, mm -hmm. and that's something that the president is obsessed upon, which means I'm obsessed upon it, or maybe I'm obsessing the president on it. I don't know, I don't know which is, is coming first. You look at what's going with, on with GDP growth. We've had two consecutive quarters of over 3% GDP growth with hurricanes in the last quarter. We were actually prepared for lower GDP last mm -hmm. quarter, thinking that the hurricanes would hurt and we'd bounce back and we'd end up averaging the two quarters out. Um, we still probably do get a pretty big bounce back next quarter in mm -hmm. GDP. You look at what the stock market's telling you about people committing capital and willing to invest in our economy. Things are really strong in what's going on in, in this segment of what I'm concerned about. And I know the president's also very concerned about the U.S. economy and concerned about U.S. job growth and how we're driving our economy forward because our economy gives us strength. I, you know, when he went to Asia this week, he said that. One of the first things he said is our economy's doing so well so the president feels like he has leverage in dealing with our allies in Asia. But all those strengths kind of undercut the argument that, oh, we have to do tax reform right now, don't they? Well, again, I, I touched on a really important point. We have not had wage growth in this country. So we've got a lot of Americans finding work, but they're finding work at stagnant wages. Really, to continue going on with this recovery, this long recovery, is we have to find a way to really drive wage growth. Um, what our tax plan is really aimed at doing is creating wage growth. I think you've seen a bunch of economic reports. The CEA put out a report a couple weeks ago where they talk about our tax plan driving about $4,000 per family of wage growth into the system. $4,000 of wage growth has enormous multiplier effect in the system. The one thing we know for sure is American citizens know how to spend their money effectively. The multiplier effect on individual citizens spending their money is enormous. The multiplier effect on government spending their money, not so good. Um, let me go back to one more process thing. Compare uh, the construction of this tax plan that you've been a part of with uh, the process of a major initiative at Goldman Sachs, where you came from? You know, it, it's similar in many respects, and it's different in many respects. You know, a, a, less a, rational, right? Well, I, I don't know if it's less or more rational. So a, a major initiative at Goldman Sachs, we would, you know, literally go through and we would be very methodical and very organized, and we would think through what we wanted to achieve, how we were going to achieve it, what would be the intended outcomes, what would be the unintended outcomes, could we live with the unintended versus the intended, what could go wrong, what could go right, how would we solve for all of the issues, and we would test that over and over and over again and bring in as many smart people as we mm -hmm. possibly could to test that scenario. And how's it different now? But at the end of the day, 
you only had to convince one, two, or three people to do it, right? Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, there was a, a small, small group of us. You know, I would say a maximum of three of us that you had to convince to, to, to make a major initiative change. Remember, in dealing with what we have to deal with, in, with, with taxes, we have 400 plus members of Congress and 100 members of the, of the Senate, where we have to get 218 votes and 51 votes. So we not only have to think about what the objective is with taxes and tax reform, we have to think how do we get 218 votes and how do we get 51 votes on top of understanding the intended consequences, the unintended consequences. We have to overlay that with a big political umbrella so and hard. saying politically, how do we deal with this? Yeah. Um, let me go to one thing that's uh, come out in the news in the last couple of days that may be related to Texas. These Paradise Papers came out, and you're mentioned in them about having a couple dozen, maybe 22, I think, entities that were um, uh, headquartered in Bermuda, which is a tax haven. If you were explaining to an average voter, why do you have, why, why did you have 22 entities in Bermuda? What's the explanation? So, not that I know a lot about these, because yeah. I found out about them in the newspaper. So, they ended in 2006. Mm -hmm. I didn't have them personally. Goldman Sachs had them. Mm -hmm. Your name was on them, but it was... Well, I, so Goldman Sachs had them. Because I worked at Goldman Sachs in the division I was running at the time, I became an officer of those companies by the mere position I held. I didn't have money in them. I didn't do anything but become an officer of those entities. Why do they How, exist? I'll, I'll explain it to you hmm? for a, a simple answer as I can. When you run a, a, a global investment business or global fund business, every different country has different requirements. And the United States has requirements. So when investors from certain parts of the world can't meet the requirements in the United States, you try and find a neutral third party country where you can put all the investors together into one legal entity. You create the vehicle in that legal entity, you pull the capital in that entity, and you run the entity in that area. Then, because it's a tax haven. Nope, nope. It's, it's a haven where the investors can all meet in a legal jurisdiction, where legally they can meet together. So it may have tax consequences. So one of the issues in the United States, not to get real technical, mm -hmm. is the United States requires certain entities to have withholding tax. Now, those entities get the withholding tax back so sovereign wealth funds would end up paying withholding tax in the United States if they had investments in the United States mm -hmm. in certain vehicles. They would end up getting it back, but it's a timing issue for them to when they get the money back. So no, they're not avoiding taxes, but they don't want to pay withholding tax in and have to apply for it back because the cost of doing that is really just wasted money for something they never would have had to pay. So you go to one of these vehicle countries and you create a fund in one of these vehicle countries. Is it embarrassing to have that come out? I, I'm not embarrassed. I'm not embarrassed at all. This is the way that the world works. There was nothing done in any of these to avoid anything. In fact, many of these vehicles were set up to send capital into the United States to buy securities or buy assets in the United States. It's a way to facilitate international commerce. and It's a way to facilitate capital moving into the United States. Um, let's go back to tax reform. When you're designing what you eventually came out with, what were the one or two most important principles that drove what you did? So the president had two really important principles. I, I, I call them two sort of bright line or red lines that he's really driving at. 
Number one is we have to deliver middle class tax cuts to the hardworking families in this country. The president believes that the middle class has been delivered a bad deal. They're working too hard and they're giving the government too much of their wage income. Number two is he believes, and, and, and I think we all agree with him broadly on this topic, is that our corporate tax system just is not competitive with the rest of the world. In fact, when you look at where we stack up versus all the other OECD nations, we are just not competitive. We have a very high tax rate vis-a-vis -vis all of the other countries that we compete with. The president said, look, we have to solve for the middle income tax cut, and we have to create a corporate tax rate, and along with that, a pass-through tax rate that makes us competitive with the rest of the world so we can attract businesses back to the United States, we can keep businesses back in the United States, and people want to grow their business back in the United States. We can become globally competitive again. Let me suggest an, uh, an alternative principle that um, uh, suggests itself when you look at the components of the plan, the fact that you've got um, uh, big corporate reductions, big pass-through reductions for business, much more uh, tax cuts for businesses than for individuals. Uh, you've got the elimination of the estate tax. You've got the preservation of the step-up basis. You've got the elimination of the alternative minimum tax. Um, that what you have is a bunch of people, including you, including the president, uh, who say what I do, who, who think what I do is good for the economy, therefore taxing the things that I do less will be good for the economy and good for other people instead of giving direct benefits to those people because middle class people in this tax cut do not get very much indirect benefit. I disagree with you. I just completely disagree with you. Look at the numbers. Uh, the number, I'm looking at the numbers. I'm looking at the numbers every day. I've done nothing but look at the numbers for the last 90 days. And so I just disagree with you. Well, uh, if you look at joint tax, they say there's a trillion dollars in net um, tax cuts. Is this cuts. the joint tax report that came out yesterday? No, this is the, the Congressional Joint Committee okay. on Taxation. It's not the Tax Policy Center. A trillion dollars in net cuts for business. Um, uh, $200 billion through oh, the okay. estate tax. I agree, I agree with this. And $300 billion for individuals. So four times as much in business tax cuts and estate tax yeah as for individuals. Yep. But John, if you look at what we're doing for middle class taxpayers, the reality is kind of simple. So I'm going to take the example that the speaker used but last you're, week. You're, what you're doing is defining a business tax cut as a middle class tax cut. No, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about the middle yeah. class right now. Yeah. What, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm defining the reality of what the speaker talked about when he released the plan. Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk about what Chairman Brady talked about yesterday. They talked about the median income family in the United States, the family that earns about $60,000 in the United States. The speaker talked about them getting an $1,182 tax cut. That family is now paying a marginal tax rate of less than 1%. They're paying less than $500 of total taxes mm -hmm. in the system. So a $60,000 earner, family of four, is paying less than $500. Mm -hmm. We have cut their taxes significantly. The, the, you can't go much further in the tax system. You're saying you can't give middle class uh, taxpayers more of a tax break than you've done? No, I, I'm saying that, that unless you want to start going negative tax rates and go into the negative world, then you, we're, we're basically at the point where that median family that we're talking about, we look a lot at the median mm -hmm. family, 
Median family is 60. The average family is mm -hmm. 80. We look at these numbers all day long. That median family in the United States today is paying less than $500 on wages of $60,000, less than a 1% tax rate. We've taken, a, we've taken substantial So there's only dollars. so far you can go. Right. So when people score this, you're scoring against the bound of zero. But uh, nevertheless, they, again, the Joint Tax Committee of the Congress, which is controlled by your party, well, Republicans, not your party, um, they, uh, you have a tax bill that takes away deductions for high medical expenses, that um, preserves carried interest, I know they're working on that, that takes away deductions for um, grad school tuition um, uh, breaks, um, that takes away an adoption credit, and on a percentage basis, people in the top 1% get twice as much of a reduction in their effective tax rate as everyone else. Yeah. Look, first of all, we're not done. And as the only thing you, you have to work on now is, is the House blueprint. We're going to get a Senate plan later this week. But again, you're, they're also adding into the, the effects of the estate tax. They're adding in there the effects of the pass-through rate. And, and, it, and it widely differs when you look at different individuals in, in the whole tax system. Remember, we're, the big thing we're trying to do is we're trying to solve for middle-income, hardworking families. And, and we've spent an enormous amount of time trying to but do the, that. The co companies that benefit from pass-through rates are high-income because uh, if they were middle-income, they'd be paying at the 25% rate already. And instead, we're talking about uh, the vast majority of those benefits going to... Uh, Wealthy uh, businesses. I, I think you've got to wait till the whole plan is done and see where we finally end up and see what the plan comes out. I, I, I really do. You, look, we've why got to do a plan. state tax at all, and why preserve? If you preserve step-up basis, that means many capital gains for your kids, for Donald Trump's kids, will never be taxed. Like I said, let's wait and see where the final plan comes out on the estate tax in 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 in, in isolation. If you look at the couple of groups who are the biggest advocates for repealing the estate tax, it really is. It's, it's the pass-through businesses and it's the farmers. Those are the two groups that put the most pressure on us to repeal Tiny the estate tax. Tiny number of farms it, it, get it, pay it, estate tax. It's the groups. It's Donald it's, Trump, Gary Cohn, people like you guys. Uh, Gary Cohn doesn't care about the estate tax. I can guarantee you. I can guarantee you. Oh, the, you're the one who said only a moron pays the estate tax? I can guarantee you Gary yeah. Cohn doesn't care about the estate tax. Okay, but I think Donald Trump does, and I think Donald Trump's kids do. Uh, and, and when you look at the actual number of real farms that pay the estate tax, it is tiny. It's, a, it's in the dozens. Well, I, I think people have managed to keep themselves below the estate tax. This is the whole issue. Many people are smart enough to know how to manage themselves out of the estate tax. So if you have a family farm that's big enough that it's going to hit the estate tax, you start paying lawyers, consultants, and accountants to break up your land and break up your farm and giving it to the kids when the families would prefer to keep the farm intact, keep it whole, and manage it as one big farm. This is exactly the point. We're forcing people into irrational behavior when we'd like to keep them in rational behavior and run the farm as one big farm. But are you seriously the, the, saying the with a, forcing that. Are you seriously saying with a straight face that getting rid of the estate tax is about farmers and not about very wealthy families? What I'm saying is that it, it benefits farms, 
It benefits small businesses. It benefits a lot of different people. We do small not believe with we, we more than eleven believe, million dollar estates. We do not believe that tax that the death should be a taxable event. Right. So I mean, this is Mnuchin has said this that it's a justice issue. It's a fairness issue, not an economic issue. You, are you saying the same it, thing? It, it's it, not about stimulating the economy. It, it, it's both. We want, How does it stimulate the economy? Well, look, we want that farmer to go out and buy the next piece of land and the next piece of land and the next piece of land and create the economies of scale and be able to compete in the world. That makes sense to me. We want the small business to go double the production line and not have to worry about the size of his factory, worrying that, oh, my God, I may incur a state tax and my family's going to have to sell this business. We're trying to encourage investment. Everything in our tax plan is meant to encourage investment. We're giving people, and hopefully this survives, we're giving people a five-year window to expense all of, their, all of their capital improvements. We want people to grow businesses. We want people to hire. We want people to grow wages. Same thing in small businesses. Same thing in farms. This is what we're trying to achieve. Am I, am I correct that you're not saying, as you did a few weeks ago, that the uh, wealthy do not get a tax cut under your plan? You're not saying that anymore. I, I, no. I, I'm saying there's, there's unique situations to everyone out there. Everyone has their own story. Everyone has their, right, their own Right, but at one point situation. you said there's no tax cut, and, and, and your colleagues in the administration said the same thing. No tax cut for rich people. It's, You're not saying it's that. It's not our intention to give the wealthy a tax cut. That was not but our intention. But they are getting one. I don't, believe that, that, I don't believe that we set out to create a tax cut for the wealthy. If someone's getting a tax cut, I'm not upset that they're getting a tax cut. I'm really not upset. Mm -hmm. And, and by the way, I don't think we've seen the final piece of legislation. No, I, I know we haven't seen the final piece of legislation. Let, let me mention two people I talked to yesterday uh, who are raising the same concerns from different parts of the spectrum. Your old colleague, Steve Bannon, in the White House. I said, talking to Gary Cohen tomorrow, what, what, what should I ask him about tax plans? He says, ask him why they didn't design a tax plan focused on average Trump voters. And when I talked to Larry Summers, who's your predecessor at the NEC, also Treasury Secretary, he said, look, they're doing what their money wants, meaning the financial base of the Republican Party. Well, that's their opinions. They're entitled to their opinions. I, why are they wrong? I, I, I said they're entitled to their opinions. What I, what I strongly believe is we have two objectives, and we've, we have achieved our objectives. We are delivering a middle-income tax cut, and we are, lowering, we are lowering corporate taxes to make ourselves competitive with Big. the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I know that you guys have arguments, Kevin Hassett and others, about uh, what the impact will be on the deficit, what the impact will be on growth, and what the impact will be on average workers. But I think it's pretty clear that if you look at the center of gravity of the economics profession, what they will say is that the deficit will go up more than you guys say, growth will increase less than you guys say, and that workers will get less than you guys are projecting. Again, we don't agree. We, we vehemently don't agree. We look at the data. This, to me, is, is, is pretty fundamental. When you take a corporate tax rate at 35% and move it to 20%, and you see what's happened over the last two decades to businesses migrating out of the United States, migrating profits out of the United States, migrating domicile out of the United States, and hiring workers out of the United States, it's hard for me to not imagine that they're not going to bring 
businesses back to the United States, bring workers back to the United States, domicile back in the United States, and hire workers. When you hire workers... If you go territorial, don't you encourage more businesses to leave because they, they're not, they're not going to be subjected to... When you go territorial, you open up the level, you level the playing field, but then you, comp you have to compete on your rate. Our rate is going down to 20%. When you have a 20% rate, you become very competitive. When we have a competitive rate... But if they rate, pay less overseas, why won't they have more activity overseas? So when you have a competitive rate, as I was saying, when you have this 20% rate and you go to expand your factory, you have to go hire more workers. In the employment world we're in today, you have to go compete for labor. To go compete for labor, you have to pay the marginal or incremental worker more than he's earning today. And then we finally can create some wage inflation in the United States. We create wage inflation, which means the workers get paid more, the workers have more disposable income, the workers spend more, and we see the whole, the whole trickle down through the economy. And that's good for the economy. So when people say that we're going to get less growth, I don't see that. When they say we're going to get less earnings, I don't see it. When we look at this and we run our models, and we've had lots of economists do this, they come back and they tell us this is what's going to happen. Look at what's happened in other parts of the world. How did Ireland go from a dormant, stagnant economy falling off, uh, falling off the cliff you know, in the financial crisis to where they are now? Look at what, what the UK did. The UK cut taxes once and stimulated the economy. Guess what they're doing? They're going to cut taxes a second time to continue to grow. It's working in other parts of the world. Why won't it work here? Do you think the economic effects you're describing uh, will take place even if firms don't um, uh, take money that they repatriate and invest it but instead give it into share buybacks uh, as they did the last time we had a holiday? Absolutely. Absolutely. It, so that doesn't matter. If, if so, that happens, so, that's so, fine. So John, look, what we're doing is we're deeming repatriation. So the minute we pass the law, you are going to have to take an accrual on your books for the taxes owed on that money. So you mm -hmm. don't have a choice whether you bring the money back. Mm -hmm. So you have a liability on your books. You're going to end up owing us the taxes. Once you end up owing us the taxes, now you're making a business decision when you bring the money, if you bring the money back. If people bring the money back because they think there's an economic return that makes sense here in the United States, we believe there's a great economic sense. If they go to your alternative, which is they issue dividends or they buy back stock, guess what? We get another 20% tax on the money that they issue in dividends or they issue in taxes. So we get a repatriation tax. We get a dividend or capital gains tax. The people that get those dividends or they get those capital gains, they're probably investors. What are they going to do? They're going to go reinvest that money back in the market. That company is then going to invest that capital back in the United States. One way or another, it's going to get reinvested. If we end up collecting two taxes versus one, I'm okay with that. And that I prefer the initial company to reinvest. But that doesn't um, that doesn't uh, limit the wage effects you guys are expecting. The idea that you're going to hire more workers and pay the marginal worker more. If it goes to share buy buybacks, doesn't mean there'll be a lot less than that? When it goes to share buybacks, as I'm saying, the open investor doesn't want the money. Mm -hmm. If I've got a pool of capital invested in the market today and you send me a big dividend, I'm most likely sending that money back to someone else so they can reinvest it and hire workers. It's going to get back into the market. Um, Another thing Larry Summers told me, and again, he's been in your job, he said, look, um, the country wants to spend more on defense. We've got a whole lot of baby boomers retiring. Uh, we are going to need more money for government and not less. So uh, the Penn Wharton model, uh, run by a former Bush administration economist, not a Democrat, says that this plan by 2040 will lose $4 trillion. During that time, 
the number of people on Social Security is going to go from 45 million to 72 million. Uh, how in the world does that make sense? We firmly believe that we are creating a model that creates economic growth in this country. The only way we've ever been able to pay down debt in this country, and you can go back and look at it, whoever the president was, the years we pay down the debt is when our economy is growing and GDP is but growing. But you know no tax the, cuts ever paid for itself. The years that we increase deficit are years when our economy is slowing down and we continue to borrow more and more money. So the number one thing we can do for the United States citizens is to grow the economy. This tax plan is meant to grow the economy. Are you thinking that uh, you'll deal with that uh, Social Security, Medicare, baby boomer retirement issue later by entitlement reform that reduces benefits? Look, the president on the economic front laid out three core principles or three core initiatives that he wanted to get done in, in, in his first couple of years. Number one was reg reform. Number two was taxes, and number three was infrastructure. We're working our way methodically through reg reform, taxes, and infrastructure. I think when he gets done with those, I think welfare is going to come up. Welfare reform is, uh -huh. is, is, is high on his agenda. Uh -huh. That's our near-term economic agenda right But as now. you think about it, rational, as a rational person, think, looking at how revenue will, is going to go down under this, and expenses on entitlements are going to go way up. Are you thinking Again, that we will I'm later not, get to a reform that reduces benefits so that it balances? I don't think revenue has to go down. I think when you expand the base, which we want to expand the base, we want to bring in more capital investment, we want to tax more of a broader base at a lower number, I'm not, I'm not going to give you that revenue is going down. This uh, Penn Wharton model that was run by this former Bush economist, it's got a new projection out today that shows that there is a uh, more likely than the alternatives chance that this will shrink the economy in the long run because of the deficit drag, the debt drag on growth. We, we don't agree with that. We don't agree with that. We believe that we're going to have a very stimulative effect on the economy by lowering the business tax rate, by lowering the corporate rate, and making America competitive with the rest of the world. It's really hard when you're a capital commander. And look, a year ago, I was on the other side of this equation. I was advising companies how to get out of the burdensome, burdensome U.S. tax system. We were talking about inversions. We were talking about moving companies out of the United States. Mm -hmm. It was the the most compelling presentation I could make to a board is, hey, I can turbocharge your earnings without doing anything in your company. Well, how do you do that? Well, I can just relocate your domicile and you can hold your board meetings, you can do a few things, and you can go from a 35% tax rate to a 15% tax rate. You can deliver 20% of your earnings to the bottom line. Did you well, feel that, guilty advocating that? That's amazing. No. As an American? No, yeah. I didn't feel guilty because boards have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders. That's what they're supposed to do. So you know what? We're going to make America competitive. We're going to make it compelling for people to build their companies in America. We're going to make it compelling for people to invest capital in this country again. That, to me, is exactly what we need to do. And all these people that are writing about the economy not growing, I think they're going to be proven wrong. Um, you are, we switch gears from tax reform, a couple more things before I let you go. You, I imagine, are the point person in the White House for big CEOs because you come from their world, they know you. What are you hearing from them right now? What are they, what are they talking about? How do they observe the way the White House is functioning, the economy, et cetera? Well, since you bring it up, the most excited group out there are big CEOs about our tax plan. 
they all tell me how excited they are to get a tax plan that makes the United States competitive, makes it so they can grow their business domestically, makes it so they can, can actually pay wages here. You know, the, the one interesting thing that we didn't talk about, and I'll, and I'll bring it up, is you know, corporate earnings have grown over the last 10 years, mm -hmm. but wages haven't. Why has, how can those two things work together? Well, it's kind of simple. Corporate earnings have grown, but all of their earnings are trapped offshore. People have trapped their money offshore, so you can't pay U.S. workers. You can pay non-U.S. workers because you've got the money offshore. Don't businesses but of course, have a ton you, of domestic cash? You don't want to bring the money home. No, but don't they, they have a ton they of money domestically? Well, they, they borrow money at home to expand if they want to expand at home, but their real earnings are trapped offshore. So the trillions and trillions of dollars that we're talking about to be repatriated are earnings that are trapped offshore. If companies were making that money onshore, they'd be paying their labor, they'd be paying their workers more money. So our biggest supporters are really a business roundtable. When you talk to all the CEOs, and those are the largest CEOs, the hundreds of largest CEOs in the country, they're the most excited about this, and they're the ones that are telling us what they're going to do in the United States, how they're going to invest capital, how they're going to grow their business. That's why I'm so sure that we're going to grow the economy here. Um, after the events of this summer, Charlottesville and others, you, many of your friends, peers in the business world, decided, hey, I don't want to for my reputation, my company's reputation, I don't want to be associated with this White House. They disbanded these um, economic councils. Um, there was a lot of speculation that you were going to leave. Why didn't you? Look, I am in an amazing position. The president has given me unbelievable task, unbelievable responsibility to help him drive his economic agenda. I believe in his economic agenda. I believe in what he's doing on deregulation. I believe what he's doing on taxes. And I believe what he's doing on infrastructure. When I look at myself, I've been really a lucky American to end up where I am. I owe it to the country to work for the citizens of the country, work for the president, and try and help him drive his economic agenda. You're not worried that your reputation will suffer by association with the administration? I'm, I'm not. I'm not. And when we get tax reform done and the economy grows, I'm really not worried. You, um, you did speak out, though, uh, after the president uh, spoke. Um, do you think the fact that you spoke out is the reason that you were not in the Rose Garden the other day being announced as Fed chair? Look, I think the president picked the exact right person to be the Fed but chair. But do you think and that's very, why? And I'm very supportive of Jay. I think Jay's a great selection, mm -hmm. and he's the perfect choice to be Fed chair. Right. But do you think that's why you, it wasn't you? I think Jay's the perfect choice to be Fed chair, and I'm very supportive of Jay. It sounds like you do think so. No, I think Jay's the right choice. Okay. Uh, last thing, and then I'll let you go. Uh, compare Donald Trump and Lloyd Blankfein as bosses. <laughs> uh, they've got a lot of similarities. What are they the got similarities? A lot of similarities? Look, I'm surprised to hear you say that. Yeah, what, do you, what, do you, what do you mean? Look, they're both very driven. They're both very passionate. Um, they both strongly believe in what they're doing. I mean, their, 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 core, their core messaging is, is, is very similar. I mean, they come into the office with passion every day. And they, they, they are both driven by the mission um, and feel like they need to get the mission accomplished day in and day out. So in many respects, they have a lot of similarities. How are they different? Look, they, they, they approach it differently. You know, but, but that's, that's... What do you mean by that? Look, a corporate setting and the White House are different settings. You know, one's an elected official with a very public persona. One's a CEO with a fairly private persona and driving messaging inside the private persona where your clients don't really want to see you make news. 
where on the other side where your clients want to see you make news, which is the electorate, you approach those two things from a very different perspective. So they're both managing their clients very effectively. Mm -hmm. And I think they both understand who their client base is and they manage their client base effectively. Uh, once tax reform is done, are you going to leave the White House? There's nope. been a lot of speculation. No, I know. There's speculation on anything. Yeah. If there is, it your, is it your plan to stay through the entire first term? It's my plan to stay and work as long as I can help the president drive his economic agenda. Right. But do you, would you, do you, the way you think of it now, uh, you're almost one year in, are you thinking that's the entire first term? John, I don't know. Uh, you know, a year ago today, I wasn't thinking I'd be here. So for me to tell you where I'm going to be four years from now, I have no idea. Gary Cohn, thanks so much. Thank you. Gary Cohn's future should come into sharper focus soon. The president and Republicans in Congress are pushing hard for final votes on tax cuts this month. That would complete the central mission of his year on the Donald Trump roller coaster. Thanks for listening to this latest edition of Speakeasy. For more of my interviews, subscribe on iTunes and visit cnbc.com speakeasy. Talk soon.